Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Devika Girish. I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment magazine, and I co-program the talk section of the New York Film Festival with my colleague, Madeline Whittle. So today's conversation is part of a subsection of the New York Film Festival talks program called Film Comment Live, where Film Comment puts together certain panels, bringing together uh, people, whether in the festival or outside of the festival, to discuss issues that we think are really relevant and crucial to film culture today and that we think we all need to be talking about. And today's panel, I mean, is absolutely one of those issues. We've, for the last three months, we've all been reading headlines and watching TikToks and just seeing all kinds of media coverage about the historic strikes in Hollywood led by the Writers Guild of America and SAG-AFTRA, and Writers Guild of America just, uh, you know, closed, uh, ended the strike and closed their deal and I believe are about to ratify uh, the contract. SAG-AFTRA is still at the negotiating table. And we thought that this was a good moment for all of us to gather and really understand what led to these strikes, what are these guilds, you know, especially at a film festival, cinema can seem very glamorous, movies can seem like they're all about stars and premieres. And what the strikes I think have really reminded us that is that movies are made by workers, that making art is a form of labor that needs to be compensated because the livelihoods of many people depend on it. So, in order to get into those topics and more, I'm so excited to introduce our guest for today. First of all, we have Lisa Takeuchi Cullen, who is the president of Writers Guild of America East. <laughs> Stealing time away from some very busy negotiations right now is Rebecca Damon, who's the executive director of SAG-AFTRA New York. We also have Alyssa Wilkinson, who's a senior correspondent and critic at Vox, who has done some incredible coverage of the strikes and of the labor realities of Hollywood uh, on Vox.com. And co-hosting today's panel with me is my co-programmer, Madeline Whittle, who I should also say is the chair of Film at Lincoln Center Union that I'm a proud member of, so. All right, uh, Maddie, did you want to start us off? We have so many questions to get yeah, to. A lot, yeah, a <laughs> lot of ground to cover. Um, I'm uh, just to reiterate, thank you all so much for being with us, and thank you all for joining the conversation. Um, to to dive in, I was hoping that we could start with a little bit of historical context uh, about the organizations, the WGA and SAG-AFTRA, um, and then the history of their. Um, function within the film industry, how they came about, uh, how uh, a working actor or writer today uh, becomes a member, and, and if you could just lay that groundwork for us. 
first of all, thank you for being here. Did you know that this was going to be a conversation about labor? Or did you think we were going to be talking about movies and shit? Because <laughs> we have some dedicated cinephiles and right. labor heads in our audience. <laughs> okay. Um, so I am uh, the president of the Writers Guild of America East. We have uh, two sister guilds. Uh, we're commonly known all all collectively as the Writers Guild of America. But we are separate entities. There's the West and the East. Uh, my guild uh, started uh, 69 years ago. And it, it represents all TV and movie writers uh, east of the Mississippi. And it's simply geographical. If you happen to live east of the Mississippi, when you sell your first project to a signatory, then you join the Writers Guild of America East. We are a smaller guild than our counterpart in the West. The West has about 10,000 members, I think, and we have, we have about 7,000 members. However, a portion of them are journalists, including Alyssa. Alyssa is one of our journalist members. Uh, we, have, we also represent uh, online media, digital journalism, and broadcast news writers. Um, but about 60% of our membership are film and television members. How you join the guild is exactly like I said, you just sell a project, and then then you're, you're automatically in the guild. Uh, whether you qualify for health insurance, which is what everybody typically wants to know about when they join the guild, is a financial bar. You have to earn above a certain minimum to qualify for our excellent health insurance, which we also worked on during this contract. That was fantastic. There you go. Um, hi there. I'm Rebecca Damon, and I'm the executive director for SAG After New York, Labor Policy and International Affairs. Uh, for SAG-AFTRA, we actually uh, are a little bit different in that we are a union that came from two great unions that merged, uh, both Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists were formed in the 1930s in another amazing labor moment, movement. Uh, and at the time when uh, Screen Actors Guild was originally formed, uh, a lot of the same sort of really abuse of studio power that they faced in that moment are what we're really facing today in our in our strikes. Um, we merged in 2012, so we've actually been one union. Uh, and without us being one union, so much of what we're doing right now would not just even be possible. Uh, there's so much power in that. Um, we represent 160,000 SAG-AFTRA members across the country. Uh, we're here in New York. It's our second largest local uh, with about 36,000 members. And what's exciting about our members is obviously everybody thinks of, you know, actor performers, but they also should be thinking about our singers, our dancers, our recording artists, our broadcast members, whether they be in entertainment like a DJ or news, uh, stunt performers, puppeteers, background performers. Basically, if you're in front of a camera or behind a microphone, very often you're a SAG-AFTRA member if you're, you're working in this trade. So that for us uh, is very exciting because we're at a moment with all of that collective strength uh, that our union is, uh, I feel like at a moment in time where we're, we've really taken a lot of the lessons uh, from the past and we're actively living them now. And I'm just so impressed by our members. To follow up on that, I wanted to ask you both why a union or a guild is necessary in these professions. Because, you know, for example, Maddie and I, we have salaried staff jobs. We work nine to five. 
unionizing means something a little different, I think, for us. What does unionizing look like in these industries and why is it important? I think everybody needs a union. So I'm going to come at this. Everybody needs a union because that is the only equalizer in power. We are living in a world with these huge conglomerates where CEOs make more money in a day than most people will ever see in a year or in 10 years or in their lifetime. I mean, we are in a such a moment where I've always believed in the labor movement and our board deeply believes in it, but I think the country is starting to understand on a new level what it means to be in a union. First off, in our case, for our members, many of them come to this, and it's probably similar in the Writers Guild too, people don't do this because they have to, they do it because they love it. And they love it so much that it is their their life's dream. And when you are pursuing your life's dream, that is one of the most easy groups for people to take advantage of. The passion and, tax. Yes, yes. <laughs> but because you were pursuing your life's dream doesn't mean that you don't still deserve, need, and have a right to all those basic things. Uh, money so you can pay your rent and put food on your table, the ability to make sure that your kids are okay, that you have health insurance, that you have a pension, all of these things, good, safe working conditions. Those things, the only way to get those things is to demand them, and you demand them through your union. All those things that Rebecca just mentioned, health insurance, pension, residuals, the things that we take for granted today, we achieved by striking. We did not have those things when these guilds first started out. We had to strike in order to win them. We had to wrest them from the grasp of our corporate employers. And that's the kind of power that a union gives you. It's like that children's book, Swimmy. Do you guys remember that book? Where all the little fish are being eaten by the big fish and they decide to swim together so they look like a big fish and then they defeat the, the big fish? Organize. <laughs> this is a metaphor for labor. And in these creative professions, as Rebecca said, we, we do do it because we love it. And as one of our speakers on uh, our picket line said recently, that is a dangerous thing to admit that you love what you do because people think that they can pay you less. And that's true in creative professions. It's true in a lot of different professions, but certainly in ours. However, the product that we create has value. It has immense value. It makes the corporations that sell what we create billions of dollars. It makes the CEOs at the tops of these corporations hundreds of millions of dollars. David Zaslav made $250 million in 2021. That's unconscionable. All we're asking for is our fair share. All we're asking for is a small slice of that pie that we help create because these companies have one product and it's what we create. They can't do it without writers. They can't do it without actors. To delve more into the history of, of how we got to this moment, um, I want to ask um, Lisa and also Alyssa, who's reported extensively on, on these labor disputes, uh, if you could talk a bit about the last WGA strike in 2007 and 2008, uh, if you could just speak a bit about that context of how that dispute came about and what how it was resolved and what was accomplished by it, and also 
what has transpired in the last 15 years to lead us to the point that uh, another strike came about? Well, uh, so the 2007 to 8 strike is actually before I started covering Hollywood. So I mainly remember it, as you probably do, as a observer, right? But a lot of the same issues were on the table at the time, as I understand it. Di- you know, different ones as well. Um, but the strike was, again, and the writers often are str- the first ones out the door and are the ones who are striking because their contract sets a precedent for what's going to happen with the other labor unions. Um, but again, it's about, um, you know, it's about health care. It's about residuals. It's about all of these things. Um, Alyssa, do you want to just say what residuals are for some sure. anyone who may not know? So I'm not a TV writer or a film. I don't write films. I write about them. But the way I have been describing them is essentially royalties, which a lot of people are more familiar with. So your thing um, continues to make money for the company that uh, produced it or bought it. Um, and you get a slice of that pie. And often that slice is hilariously small and it's been shrinking. Um, if you watch Um, people post their royalty checks on Twitter sometimes and it's like $2 if they're lucky, right? Two cents, cents, right? Um, And it's been shrinking in part because of what's happened in the 15 years since that strike, which is, as we all know, streaming, right? And streaming um, has not been governed by the same um, rules that are in the contracts around broadcast, which is like cable and network. Um, And also lots of things have sort of been from where I sit, looks like invented to get around those rules, right? The less you can afford, the less you can pay labor, the more you can take in. Um, And there's also been an incredible amount of outlay on the part of the studios to create uh, a lot of this streaming content. um, And people are not getting paid for that. So if you, um, for instance, if you're a writer on Friends, like you're, you're getting a decent royalty check, I would imagine, right? Or sorry, residual. I'm a, I write books, so this is in my head. Um, But if you um, wrote for Stranger Things, you are not. And Stranger Things, you better believe, is making a ton of money for Netflix, right? So this is, these are two sides of a coin that have not been, or they're being brought closer to parody now. To clarify, it's because what, even though Stranger Things is just on Netflix, it's not considered a rerun? Is that the difference between well, the Friends and the Stranger Things situation? So a fun fact is that um, we don't know how many people are watching Stranger Things because Netflix doesn't want to give us that information. And there's lots of speculation about why. Some of it feels a little more conspiratorial than others. I'm not going to speculate too hard on it, but basically we don't know the answer to, to how many people are watching it, the way that we do have numbers around broadcast. Um, and because of that, and because uh, the contract looks different, there's um, just a lot of mushiness. Is that about right? Sure. Yeah. But Netflix knows. Yes. Right, exactly. Netflix knows to the second yes. how long you watch your show. Yes. I've developed at Netflix, as have many of my colleagues, and they will tell you yes. that if you haven't grabbed the audience by page three of your one-hour script, your show is dead because people aren't watching beyond that. Three minutes they'll give you. And on the flip side, they count a watch internally as a very small amount of time too, right? Um, It used to be three minutes or something like that. Um, But they don't give you that information as the labor. So... Uh, if we want to get into the nitty-gritty of what we achieved in this contract, I think we're probably getting there later, but that is one of the things that we won. Yeah. 
the streamers told us going into negotiations and they left it when we started on the strike, they left us saying, we will never tell you what our streaming numbers are. Never, never, ever, ever, ever. And, and now they agree that they will. Um, it's not going to be public. It's going to be shared with, for some reason, a group of six of our staffers. Um, but we will get that information so that we can essentially fact check. Because one of the main things we want in this contract is streaming residuals. And that's another thing they told us we would never, ever win. It's interesting. So the last WG strike was in 2007-8. Uh, the last double strike, I believe, was in 1960. I don't think there's been one a double strike with the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA. Uh, I also learned through Alyssa's coverage that the SAG-AFTRA president then, or SAG president then, sorry, not SAG, was Ronald Reagan. Um, very interesting history. Um, I don't know if you both could speak a little bit about, you know, any of you could speak a little bit about what some of the main circumstances were that led to that double strike and also why a double strike, a mega strike now. How old do you think we are? <laughs> uh, I think one of us were born. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, I... I, but, you know... Obviously. <laughs> I mean, I think in a sense you already sort of covered it. Money. There you go. Uh, There's here. There you go. Uh, I think you made the point earlier that in this, in all of the big strikes that these unions have had, big achievements were won. Whether it was health plan, the concept of residuals, pension, all of those things, they didn't come without enormous fights and. Mm -hmm. That has been something that in this moment we're in an enormous fight. And obviously, I, I think there's a lot of similarities and differences, but I think I think they really underestimated what this moment was for these unions and the time. I mean, I'll just say in terms of the the whole labor movement, but specifically the unions in this space had spent a lot of time during the pandemic thinking about what work safety was going to be. We had a whole process of trying to figure out, at least for the actors, what that would look like. And all of the industry unions, I mean, I, I think we've always had fantastic relationships here in New York, but the deepening of the relationships between the unions, leaders, staffs, and otherwise, and members led to a different kind of understanding of everybody's power. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, at least in the case of this moment that we're in, uh, had we not had the ability to see how much disregard there might be for our members, our workers, uh, the pandemic really showed that possibility. And so, uh, at least in our case, when we started to see the level of uh, disrespect that were shown to our colleagues, the people that put the words on the page that give the actor the ability to have a performance, uh, I think it was just, a, it was very clear the road that we might need to go down. I think this might be a good moment to point out that from six o'clock, there will be a picket in front of New York City Ballet by uh, the American Federation of Music Musicians, um, Local 802. That's right. Uh, so if you can pop out and, you know, walk a, a circle or, you know, raise your fist in support of the musicians who make our movies and our TV shows and our, our theater uh, the rich experiences that they are, I think it would be a, a great show of uh, unity and solidarity. Um, 
Rebecca can't talk much about her negotiations because they are ongoing, uh, but I can. Um, and I, in on the first day that we gathered in the caucus room at the offices of the AMPTP, which is the body that represents all the studios, you might have seen that acronym in a lot of articles about the strike, they have their offices in the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which is a shitty mall <laughs> with a cheesecake factory and a, a PA, PJ Chang's across the street and a Buffalo Wild Wings next door. Uh, we walked in and there was this beautiful woman uh, who came in and I thought, is she an executive? Is she an actress? She had this like sharp suit on and this like Hollywood haircut. And then she took her suit jacket off and her arms were covered in tats. And one of them was Jimmy Hoffa. And it was Lindsay Doherty of the Teamsters. And she came in person to the first day of our negotiations to sit with us in caucus to show us her support. Duncan came too. Duncan Crabtree Island, who is the, the national uh, executive director of SAG-AFTRA, came as well. He did not have an armful of tats. Maybe he, he did. He might have some. Yeah. He might. Okay, some, some other <laughs> hidden parts of his body, but he kept it hidden up. And, uh, and that, that told us that we were going to enter a different kind of negotiation than we ever had before, that we had the power of our sister unions in Hollywood behind us. And sure enough, when we struck, the Teamsters told us from the get-go that they would honor our picket lines. So the Teamsters have a special clause in their contract that prevents employers from firing them for honoring another union's picket lines. None of the rest of us have that. There are a few IATSE. IATSE is the, is the union that covers crew. A few of their locals have a similar clause. We tried to get it. We failed. But none of us have that except for the Teamsters. And so the Teamsters from day one said, if you guys are out there while, we're, while somebody is shooting, we won't cross. And that absolutely changed the game for us. Here in New York, we realized that this was true on our first production uh, picket, where uh, we had like four people out in the middle of the night uh, in an outer borough uh, for a production, and the Teamsters came up and they're like, yeah, we're not going to cross. We're just not going to cross. And we shut down that show. We wound up shutting down 10 TV shows and or movies uh, completely in production. And the point of that was not to make our fellow Hollywood workers suffer or to cause loss of work to crew or to actors, although that was, that was a painful side effect of some of, of those shutdowns too. But the point was to make the studios feel the hurt so that we could punch them where they would actually feel it and that would be in the pocketbooks. I just want to throw in the 1960 thing because this was so interesting to me. And I think the fact that it's been so long really underlines how important this exact moment has been for the unions. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the, the uh, Screen Actors Guild at the time was concerned predominantly with movies were starting to be shown on TVs and TVs were starting to be in people's homes and the studios did not want to pay residuals to the actors in those movies um, the way that they were getting paid residuals for TV shows. They said, well, we don't really care that it's on TV, like you got paid, you're done. Um, and so Reagan had been president of SAG for many years and then he sort of rotated off and then he was kind of brought back in because they knew this was coming and he is a politician 
at heart, right? Um, and uh, there's lots of disagreement over whether he got everything that he should have, but it was sort of the shutdown. And, and it's kind of funny to know that um, at the time he was he was saying things like, you know, the Screen Actors Guild is like the greatest force for for good in Hollywood or something like this, um, because of course we know how his feelings on labor went 20 years later. Um, but just looking at that fact and that the writers were striking, SAG came in, they won their thing, and then the writers won their demands eventually. Um, again, I think really underlines how um, strike moments in Hollywood have often worked and organizing moments, which is that um, technological changes are what drives Hollywood. Uh, you know, whether it's um, the advent of sound or color or television or, um, in this case, streaming and AI, um, those create existential moments for Hollywood workers. Um, and it's when the unions come together that there's real movement, even though there's, of course, movement when other strikes are happening. And so, the, uh, you know, this moment has been really quite remarkable to watch, I think, especially if you've watched labor strikes happen in Hollywood before, because there's such consensus over the fact that this is a moment that really matters to get it right. Building on this um, sort of picture of solidarity that we're painting, um, I wonder if you could each speak a bit about um, the ways in which the lives, the professional lives of writers and actors have changed in recent decades. We've spoken about streaming and, and sort of the new wrinkles in these economic structures that that has created, but even more, um, uh, and on sort of a more immediate or mundane level, can you speak about um, what these workers are experiencing in their work lives now that is different than it might have looked in 1960, and how you bring together a diversity of experiences between uh, writers at various different parts of the industry, various different stages of the career, actors who might be, uh, uh, you know, struggling and actors who are, you know, movie stars whose names we all know. How do you bring those experiences together to form a coalition? So I, I think one of the big things that our members have constantly spoken about, and I think it's really, uh, it's really resonated with the public, is the fact that, you know, all industries change. Our members are probably the, of any union members, they are probably the most pro-technology, and I love this about SAG-AFTRA members, I think as a union, technology can be very good, but it is how we use things. Business models change, but you have to adapt with them. And in this moment, uh, given just the way, you know, there was a moment in time, and it wasn't so long ago, we were alive for this, I think, Lisa, where linear television was how people experienced things. People did have the rerun. They had 22 episodes. The model of business completely changed, but the way in which the people that did the work to make the thing that people love to watch didn't evolve and change with it. And the industry has had a denial about that for just, you know, far too long. And so that moment, along with, uh, and I'm, we'll probably talk about it a little more later, uh, the way that AI, specifically generative AI, can be used, it, it is a moment in which our members, you know, they've been thinking about this and talking about this for a long time. You know, we've been talking about right of publicity and postmortem and working on laws 
I remember, you know, just a few years ago when people had no idea when we'd go to DC or Albany or Sacramento or any of the capitals where our members, you know, live and work the most, where people would look at us like they had no idea and we would spend all this time educating people. All of our members, whether they are the highest profile star or anything in between, whether it's a background actor that's concerned that they're going to be scanned one day and get one day of pay, or whether you are top of the call sheet number one, understand that this is a moment where we have to make a decision, and it's a big decision. Are we going to let the technology aid us, or are we going to let ourselves fall by the wayside? Do we want to have our own uh, moment where we've got our own Battlestar Galactica because we allowed it to happen. And so I think that was a hugely, amongst many other things, uniting moment for our members. Um, I think in their bones, they understood that this was a point where they needed to take a stand. Our national board united in this, our negotiating committee, our membership with such a high ratification, people understood that no matter where they fell in the spectrum, that they needed to make the decision to stand together, to stand with the writers, to do all of these things. Because if we didn't do it now, the, the, the ability to do it later does not, it's now. Yeah, some issues are universal, right? And uh, universal, I mean, not just among the sister entertainment unions, but really among all workers, not even just American workers, but globally. And I do believe that AI is one of them. They, AI is, we were just saying in the green room, it's coming for y'all, like everybody, right? Every line of work will be affected by AI. And I do think that that's one of the stories of this hot labor summer is that we got the world talking about the same workplace issues, the same issues that affect all of us in whatever line of work we do. And certainly this scary but cool, question mark, technology is, is one of them. I think one of the galvanizing moments of this summer was when Duncan Crabtree Ireland came out of the negotiations uh, the, the failed negotiations in which the studios had refused to meet the actors' demands, and he told the world that one of the things that the studios proposed doing was paying background actors a day rate and scanning their image and then owning that image forever in perpetuity across the universe, I think was the insane batshit language, Right. And they don't. I, they want to make sure, like, if we get to Mars, they can still air. They still <laughs> own you. They still own you, background actor number three in Law and Order SVU. Um, so uh, I, I think that 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 people around the country and around the world uh, heard that, you know, read that, and and realized, holy shit, we're all in this together. We have to band together. We have to put up some guardrails or everything we create, every work process we are part of as a lawyer, as a healthcare worker, in, in really any industry you can think of, can be taken over to some respect by this new technology. So what does that mean? I think for, for us, the realization was that it's not personal, but it is inhumane. 
right? What these companies are doing. It really is just about the money. The, the attorneys who sat across the table from us, the, the BA, the business admin people who, who sat there, they're all, they're all human beings. They all go home to their families. One of them was, you know, he's very happy to show us his dog, Russell, um, <laughs> love showing us his dog, but uh, they really just care about the money and they don't care about the people. And that's what this strike, I believe, was about, was showing that people matter. Absolutely. Can I, I just want to throw in a couple of the observable things that a lot of us probably see in our viewing habits that are like directly affecting members. The, the length of seasons of TV shows has shortened drastically. And you know this, like what shows have 26 episodes anymore that anyone like watches or talks about? Like Young Sheldon, I guess, right? But it's generally, they're very short and there have been, and I like it's really getting into the weeds to kind of explain how this affects people. But this basically means everyone's working a lot less and there's a lot less um, stability to the work you have. And so... Um, you know, writing specifically, but also acting are being turned even more into gig work uh, than previously, which makes it very hard to, um, as you were saying, support a family, make sure you have health care, like just pay rent or your mortgage or whatever. And when you think about it, one of the things that's happened in the last, I would say, 10 years is like the door has cracked open this much on more diverse voices being available uh, to be able to tell stories in Hollywood or to act and have those lead roles um, than that have been in the past. And when you make it harder to make a living in the business, then that means that the people who can afford to get in the business and stay in it long enough are often the ones who are coming from places of like immense privilege or connection to wealth or just kind of have some way of supporting themselves, not entirely, but largely. And I see this in media. This is what's true of media as well. Um, and it accounts for the like giant lack of diversity we have in uh, film criticism, if nothing else, right? Um, so if those... Uh, inequities aren't sort of addressed and rectified, then what we see is less and less and less of that. Um, and we're kind of back where we started. And that makes uh, the entertainment worse. Um, and it also means that people are struggling in ways they shouldn't need to if the thing they're making actually generates an enormous amount of profit. I mean, we're not... We're not talking about people making sculptures here. Sculptures are wonderful, but we're not talking about people sculpting things. We're talking about people making stuff that generates millions and millions and millions of dollars. And that's, um, that's like a big thing that I think a lot of us see happening, but don't kind of understand the full um, ramifications of what it means for the workers. Yeah, I think a big moment for us was when uh, we started making sure people understood that a lot of our members don't make their health insurance. They don't make enough money to make their health insurance. Uh, they're people whose faces you know, you know. They're on TV shows that you know and you watch regularly. And because the way that the business model has changed and the studios and streamers have not kept up with it, that I think people understood that on a whole level. It's like, well, but... I need health care. What's the minimum and again, Rebecca? 26000 so 86% of our members don't make enough money to make their health care. $26,000. And so it's it. I think people got that on a level of like, well, wait a minute. I see that person. I streamed that whole series last. 
it changed, I think, the conversation for the general public to understand some basic facts around this that I think in people's minds and honestly in the minds of the people that would want you to think this, people only, we value and love our top of, you know, our high profile top of call shifts, like the A-list celebrities, they have been very engaged and very supportive of this strike. But I think that that often is the misconception. It's not the journeyman performer that people necessarily think of. They don't necessarily think of the stand-in, the singer, the dancer, the background performer. Those people who this is their job, but who are being left out and left behind by the studios. Well, a great tragedy that we have to beg for health care. <laughs> great tragedy of our times. Um, one last question before we open it up to the audience. Lisa, could you talk a little bit about the major wins that you feel the public should know that have come out of your strike in negotiations? I know, Rebecca, you can't be specific, but maybe you could also speak broadly about what you would like to see in this industry in the future, as broadly as you <laughs> you need to. But Lisa, maybe you could start us off. Sure. I'll take them in uh, sectors. So in streaming, we uh, we got the transparency that I just told you about. We got streaming residuals, improved streaming residuals. We, in television, got protections around writer's rooms. You might have heard or read a lot about that, but we got guaranteed minimum numbers in writer's rooms. Uh, in film, we got a guaranteed, this sounds a little granular, but uh, it's called a second step. In any case, screenwriters are screwed. They are taken advantage of every which way. And one of them is that they are forced to do a lot of free work meaning that they get a contract, they sell their, you know, their, their script, you know, yippee, and then the producers milk them for draft after draft after draft. So we put some protections around that. Uh, in a section of the contract that we call Appendix A, which covers our comedy variety writers, which is very important to us here in the East because so many of those shows are based here, so many of our members work in comedy variety, we got them guaranteed 13 weeks of work which sounds insane, right? Like to be guaranteed, oh wow, a three-month guarantee to work? They never had that in, in streaming. I'm sorry, in streaming. They never had that. So we got them some protections in streaming that they never had before that they did in broadcast. In essence, I, I would say a, a through line is that we brought some parity to working in streaming where now a majority of our members are, are working, whereas before uh, most of us were working in broadcast or in cable uh, or in theatrical releases, but our screenwriters and our TV writers both are working mostly in streaming these days. So we had to improve conditions there. Uh, so when we went on strike, we released, you know, a nice little chart to help people out to understand uh, where we were, where our employers were. And so while I can't go into the specifics of anything now, obviously, because we're back in negotiations, I think it was a lot of the stuff we covered earlier. We talked about, you know, uh, modernizing a contract. We very much talked about AI. And that is for us such a huge I mean, if you think about the, the example that you used of Duncan's, I think it is the absolutely perfect example of uh, the kinds of things that our members are fighting for. I know earlier you also uh, mentioned to me before we came out with the different things, um, uh, I just wanted to throw it out here. One of the things that we're doing that's a little bit different right now for us that's actually been very successful is uh, pursuing interim agreements. Uh, just last night, I was out a little late, so sorry for the gravelly voice. Uh, 
uh, I got to go to one of the first interim agreements that is now going to be in theaters. She came to me. Um, they had a, uh, we were downtown, uh, all the people came out for it and it was such an interesting example of something that we used in the 1960s and the 1980s that for SAG-AFTRA has been both successful then and successful now because it basically proves all of the things that, where we left, the things that we, when we left the room that we were asking for, these independent filmmakers, this is beautifully directed by uh, Rebecca Miller, and you get to see on the screen, and it was just just an honor for us to be a part of it, that they were able to honor all of the terms that the studios and streamers somehow can't pay for. This independent, beautiful movie, she came to me, and you can go see it with a happy heart, because they did it under the union interim agreement, under SAG-AFTRA's interim agreement, and you can see it with that, and you can both enjoy a great film, but you also get to think about how this business model is so diverted away from, it is possible to make something where workers are fairly paid and at the center of that. The people that make the art actually get to participate, which is a very exciting thing for us. I forgot to mention AI. That's the biggest, uh, no, it really is. <laughs> that's um, why I grabbed it. So, yeah. And they're, they're fighting for, uh, for similar, um, not the same, but, but uh, similar issues as well. Um, but I, I, publications like the Wall Street Journal, like the New York Times, these sort of moderate um, publications are saying that the WGA showed the rest of labor how to handle AI. And how we did that is that we didn't reject it outright. We didn't say you can never use AI, right? Because this technology is here. It's not even coming, it's here. So how do we put guardrails around it so that we are protected, our work is protected, and that we're compensated? And how we did that is that we asked that, and we got, that, uh, that AI could not be considered original material, right? So a writer always has to be a human, which sounds bonkers, but that is actually in our language now. It has to be a human writing it. Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> what was happening uh, before uh, the, the strike and why it became a big deal is that producers and studios were already coming to our members and saying, we, we have a shitty script that AI spat out, and we want to hire you at a lower rate to do a rewrite. And once you do the rewrite, then it's copyrightable, right? So... So it's a really complicated issue, and it's why it was one of the last ones to be settled for us, but we did find a path forward. And I just want to say, as a journalist, that was like such an important thing for us to see, because this is, you've seen it, I think, in, in headlines, this is an ongoing issue in journalism, too. Oh, we're just going to spit out an article and you can fix it. And every writer knows it. I mean, if nothing else, it takes way longer to fix something than it does to just write it yourself. I think we're out of time now, so we'll end there. But thank you so much to our guests. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Rebecca. We wish you the best for the ongoing negotiations. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Maddie and I, we're just so honored to do this conversation. And thank you to the audience. Thanks for coming out. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, 
publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream art house and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.